Welcome back to another edition of the Wits Up podcast. It is fantastic to see all of your friendly faces. My friends, we are less than a month away from Christmas. And I don't know how you feel, but I feel like this year has uh, gone on for an eternity. But in the same breath, how the heck are we only a month away from Christmas? I don't know. I feel like I don't know what I feel like. It's been like this black hole of um, where time has stood still and yet has, like I'm, you know, conjuring up images of Back to the Future style lights, travelling at the speed of light through black holes and I don't know, I don't know, space-time continuum stuff, but continuum stuff. Uh, Anyway... Moving on, Christmas time just around the corner. We actually just posted yesterday that we've just released our Wits Up Spokeswoman enamel mug. Uh, really good idea for Christmas presents, Chris Kringle presents, or what have you. Uh, check it out. It is on our shop, uh, which is shop.witsup.com. Plus, all the other um, bits and pieces are still available. But if you are interested in purchasing it for someone else for Christmas, get onto it now. Um, Some things uh, will be quicker than others depending on what country you live in. So just make sure you check uh, the postage times before you uh, purchase, particularly if it's for a Christmas present because I'd hate for you to miss out. Um, It's out of my control. It's hosted on a different shop platform Uh, So I apologize if it's something that you do want to get in time for Christmas. Uh, So just please, 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 if you're looking to purchase any Wits Up um, apparel or accessories, please make sure you check out the postage timings if it is for a Christmas present. This wasn't meant to be a plug, but that's the way it turned out because I'm literally sitting here with a cup of coffee Uh, and Christmas came up into my head. So that's what I'm talking about. Uh, Also, a whole bunch of Christmas presents arrived. I've got onto it nice and early. It's the one thing that I am super organized about in terms of buying stuff for Frankie. Um, Everything else in my life is a shambles. I'm joking. It's getting better. Uh, But anyways, hope you're all doing well. I'm really excited about this. Excited? um, You know, I'm excited about this episode because I feel like there's a lot of people out there who do not know Elle's Viss's story. There'll be a lot of people who do, um, but there's, and I know it, but there's just something different hearing it um, directly from somebody you know I've heard I've heard snippets of her story I've even heard her talk but when I can sit down and actually discuss her story it just oh has blown me away okay this is take two of my uh, <laughs> podcast with Els Visser who it turns out doesn't have any old school headphones <laughs> in her house <laughs> well Let's say my parents' house. <laughs> but we got there. I have like plenty of them in my house, but my parents don't know what they are. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so you were you were back home um, after living in Queensland for, for how long? 
Uh, I've been for nine months in Australia this year, yes. And now it's pretty funny. I'm 30 years old and living with my parents. <laughs> hey, we've all got to do <laughs> what we've got to do. <laughs> it's pretty embarrassing, but actually I really enjoy it. Oh, I don't want to go back to my own place. Why would you? Do, does mum or dad cook for you? Yes, they do. They do the laundry. They do every, They do everything for me. Why would you leave? My husband does the same, so, I, you know, <laughs> I can never leave him. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. I don't have a husband, so I need my parents to take care of me. <laughs> yeah. um, what, what, what does a duchy triathlete um, eat or what does a duchy triathlete's parents make for her uh, when she's training? <laughs> What's what's the choice um, back home? So we eat a lot of we call it stompot. It's like one of the Dutch dishes we have. It's mashed potatoes with veggies and a sausage. Ah, <laughs> that's like typical Dutch. But we don't really have very popular Dutch foods. It's more like sweeties, like the speculaas. Maybe you have heard about it. It's Dutch cookies. Oh. Uh, we have like really good apple pie. So when I got home, my mom, she baked a really nice apple pie. Yeah. Fantastic. Mm. Um, I don't know. I don't remember the last time I had an apple pie. Uh, but really? Yeah, I might. Um, I'll um, put that to the chef in this house. That's and, what we yeah. always do here in the Netherlands when we go on a bike ride. We have apple pie during the bar, during the ride or once we are finished going to a coffee place having a coffee and apple pie or hot chocolate with a cream ah i thought you were going to say mm. during and after the ride and i'm like whoa that's a that's a lot of apple pie well i did when i started doing triathlon <laughs> but then when i turned professional my coaches told me else it's coffee before or after the ride and while you're riding you just like focus on riding it's no chatting, no chatting around anymore. Oh gosh, pro triathletes! Oh, that life sucks. Bring on all, bring on all the apple pies, I say. <laughs> yes, what a shit life we have, hey? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Sounds horrid. I remember uh, riding with a mate years and years and years ago, and we typically stop at a service station. This is on like a ride that we do every weekend. Mm-hmm. It's about a hundred k ride, and. Um, you know, most people will get, you know, whether it be chocolate bar or or whatever, but she rolls up and gets a sausage roll with sauce <laughs> and, but, but doesn't just eat it on the side of the road, jumps, oh. like, puts it in her back pocket. She's got no, sauce really? on it. Yep. Puts it, like, still in its little packet, oh puts gosh. it in her back pocket and then is eating it in the group on the ride oh on the way home. Gosh. <laughs> Yeah, it's one of my. Well, to be honest, it can be me because I'm riding a lot with Renee when I'm in Australia, and she's always complaining that I don't want to have like a break too long. So every time, like riding, and we stop at the service station, she says, "Else, like just like take five minutes, have a coke, sit down, and then <laughs> we go again." And I always like to quickly like fill my bottles and start riding straight away without stopping. Yeah, okay. You, were you living with Renee when you were in Queensland? Um, we were in separate houses, but maybe it was 300 metres uh, away from right. each other, so it was, like, really close. Hmm. Yeah, okay. So you guys became really good or close friends over that time, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, very, very close, yes. Oh, and actually good. because the COVID hit in when I – maybe I was 
for four weeks in Australia and then the lockdown started. So we had to do all our sessions by ourselves. And then Renee and I, we did everything together. Like, that was like really good, yeah, to get through COVID. So what's the, um, like, let's dish some dirt here. What is that? Is that a saying in the Netherlands, dish some dirt? Do you know what I'm what I mean? Spill the tea, dish well, some dirt? Yes, I know what you mean, but it's not really a saying over here. <laughs> I figured it probably wasn't. <laughs> um, but how did two pro triathletes um, who, you know, I think it's fair to say mm-hmm. based on your results, um, you know, over the half and the full distance, you're kind of on even footing. Um, mm-hmm. How competitive do you two get when you're such good mates? Yeah, that's the thing, because when we are training together or having breakfast, coffees together, we're like really good friends and we can really separate it from like when we have to race each other. And when we when we race each other, we've done like yeah, twice this year, I think. Then we really hope that we have a yeah, best race for ourselves and the best will win. Uh and we always like really uh, say to each other, oh, how good would it be to be first and second of the bike mm. and lead the race together? So I think that will be a dream of us to finish first and second uh, yeah. and celebrate yeah, our wins together. Um, but yeah, the strange thing is that I don't feel that competition with her. Right. I mean, you might be singing a different tune when you are first and second off the bike uh, in a race mm. and you come out of transition together. That that might be a different story as to whether you're competitive with her then. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes, of course. Mm. <laughs> um, what what kind of what kind of uh, inside intel would you have on her to try and break her on the marathon? Where do you think Ooh. psychologically you could break her? <laughs> Well, I think in training, I'm a faster runner than she is. So when I run away from her uh, and like run away, like very confident um, and she will maybe say, well, else she's a faster runner on paper. So I let her go. And well, even when I'm struggling, uh, then I think I kind of uh, have that advantage over her. Well, I'm thinking, well, she's like, she has a very big engine and maybe she's not like the fastest runner in training, but she can maintain like Mm. a good pace during like the whole race without like falling apart. So I will be scared that she will like catch up on me. Ah, so slightly (laughs) slightly different strengths, uh, Mm. but you're calling it, you'll beat her. Like that's what you're saying. I will beat her, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I want to ask what. So, for those who don't know you, um, how does how does one in the world of triathlon, especially, become a Red Bull athlete? Because it's got, it's it's got to be one of the pinnacles <clears throat> in terms of athlete sponsorship. There's it's mm-hmm. it would be a very tough um, sponsorship to secure. Talk me through yeah. that. Well, I think it's really. Um, dependent on the athlete you are. So, for example, uh, Lucy Charles, when she became a Red Bull athlete, it was like obvious that she was like a very strong and powerful athlete with a lot of potential. She had like some good results in, was it 2017? Yeah. And then she became a Red Bull athlete, had like a great performance in Kona, and they knew or they saw that what she was doing uh, in races that she 
yeah, she was like a huge talent. So um, I think she got like quickly on board. But for me, it was a two years process. So it took me mm-hmm. like a really long time to get through it. And after my win in the Netherlands, Ironman Maastricht, mm-hmm. uh, and I always had contact with them before. So I sent them updates about the races I did and the training camps I went on. And um, after the Ironman in Maastricht, they invited me to their headquarter in Austria. And they have a really big training center over there. It's called the Athlete Performance Center. Mm. And I underwent several testing for running, riding, swimming, uh, body composition, mental tests. Um, oh, wow. So, yeah, lots of testing. Um and yeah, of course they got the results, but they weren't that impressed by the time to say, well, we invite you in the team. Yeah. And then after Kona last year, I had another year of like really consistent training. I improved over the races. And then after Kona, um, I got another invitation to come back at the testing center. And then I underwent the testings I've done the year before another time. Yeah. And they compared the results and they, I made like, really like big progress i went maybe from low average uh to above average in the results so that was like really impressive to see and for myself and for them as well um and then i think with yeah maybe the story i have and uh i'm still young in the sport but yeah i think i have the potential to achieve great results when i keep going um yeah, all together they want to be part of my journey. Wow. So, yeah, for me, it was a long, yeah, two-year process. But from for other athletes, maybe it's just one or two months and they get through it. Interesting. I don't think there's many uh, sponsors or brands that invest as much as that into the decision-making process um, with athletes. I I mean, I don't think I've really heard of them hosting their own testing. Um, It's pretty much you turn up with a resume, right, and, you know, you you pitch yourself to them. Yeah, it's like a very hard selection process. It was was for me, but I think that once you get through it, you – it's not about like a one year relationship or partnership. Mm. You really want to invest in each other and they really want to be like part of my journey right now. Yeah. Um, and they also have to believe in me because I went through the testing. So yeah. I think it's very worth it to do the testing. Yep. And even in two weeks time, it depends if Austria goes out lockdown or not, but mm. if they go, uh, if they ease the restrictions, then I will go there for four weeks and we'll train at the athlete performance center again and having like the physiotherapists around and the sport doctors and I can do my training there. There are all the facilities. Yeah. Wow. Hmm. That's so interesting. I, I never knew that. Uh, I knew it would be a very, um, a very tough, uh, sponsor to connect with. Uh, but I didn't, I didn't realize that they went through that kind of rigorous testing. I kind of like it. That's awesome. Yes. Yeah, and I got the results, like a full document, maybe 100, 100 pages. It's oh, crazy wow. with all the results. And what I understood, they changed uh, owner from like the performance center and the previous owner, he was like pretty secret about all the testing they do. Yeah. 
with the new owner, he's more open about it and they like to do research with athletes data and um, yeah, they don't really hide anymore what they're, they're, they are doing there. Yeah, right. That's so hmm. interesting. And I, I assume as well as an athlete, um, for your confidence, that's a massive confidence boost as well. Hmm. Well, last year, um, of course, like I saw in the races I had and at training that I was progressing mm. uh, in times and cycles, I could swim, bike and run. But it's good to have like another uh, party looking at it as well and mm. like seeing the same uh, results. So, yeah, it was more a confirmation maybe of what we already knew. Yep. Yeah, that's mm. awesome. I love it. Uh, you, now, you you touched on this in terms of your story, um, mm-hmm. and I was wondering how I would bring this into conversation without actually just saying, "Hey, tell me, tell me about the time that you're on a ship." But mm-hmm. I really can't think of a way um, mm. of asking that question without flat out asking it. But and, and obviously, I'll let you tell the story. But the fact mm-hmm. that you just said. Um, you know, it's it's my story. Mm. Do you feel like the your shipwreck story is a a major part of who you are today? Uh, I think that I realize more and more that it is yeah a big part of who I am. Right, and it happened in 2014, and I think the first two years I didn't even know what kind of impact it had on my life. But now I realize more and more that, um, yeah, it's, yeah, a major part of my life. Yeah. And it's not that I think about it every day, but it's more like about the person I am, mm. I think. Hmm. Yeah, it's, yeah, shape, it's shaped you and yes. I guess. and the decisions I make nowadays. Mm. Um, okay, I don't want to tell the story because I don't want to butcher it. Um, I would love for you to to tell the story, your shipwreck story, which is I know you've probably told a thousand times. Uh, so you you can tell it in a shortened version, a condensed version, mm-hmm. however you want to tell it. Um, and then, yeah, if, if you don't mind, I just think I won't be able to yeah. do it justice. It's a shame because um, at the moment I'm writing a book. It's going to be published in January, so in a few weeks' time. And it's about the shipwreck as well ah. and about my triathlon career. And I really hope that there will be a translation in English so yes. everyone can read it. But um, for now it's only to be yeah going to be published in Dutch. But maybe um, yeah, in a few months' time we come up with a translation. Excellent. Um, or or you just read the book in English on the Wits Up podcast and people can just tune in for eight hours straight or however long it goes. How long, yes. how long would it take? We have, to- we have an audio book. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Um, uh, I think it will take some time for me to translate it all in English. <laughs> on the fly. I like it. Well, definitely, but definitely keep us posted. Let, let us know how that goes because we will yeah. obviously share and, yep, yeah, help get that out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for now, give us the, the uh, what do they call it? The cliff notes. Yes, yeah, so yeah. <laughs> um, I was a medical student and during my medical studies, I traveled a lot. So in 2013, I've done an internship in South Africa and did a big like trip in Southern Africa, visited a lot of, visited a lot of um, countries there. And I really enjoyed traveling. So the year after, I decided to make another trip and uh, do an internship in Indonesia uh, and had three months to travel. 
And I did my internship on Bali, traveled, yeah, different islands, and then I had one week to go. And I heard about a boat trip from the island Lombok to Komodo. Um, and I just had my dive certificate and I heard that you could, you could make like beautiful dives around these islands. So I thought, wow, that's a nice like way to finish mm. my, um, yeah, travel here in Indonesia. So it was a trip for four days and four nights on a boat. Um, and then, uh, on the first day we hit the reef, um, the reef. So. Um, we were driving in the ocean and then out of the sudden there was like a really big noise and we were looking and like the water was very shallow over there and we could look at the reef and then it was like a bit mm, this is kind of weird we are in an open ocean and uh, the captain maybe he doesn't even know where we are going and then it was like also like very clearly that we didn't have like good equip equipment on board. Um, so what time of day is this? This was maybe this was just after dinner on the first night, maybe six p.m. Right. Um, okay. But then there was another boat, and they took us away from the reef, and we could continue our trip. Um, and we had a look. Uh, outside the boat if there was any damage but the crew members they said well we are fine there's no damage and we can continue so we continued our trip and then on the second day uh, we had to make a 14-hour drive to reach the island Komodo um, and then yeah we became like into like really rough waters very high waves and it was like so bumpy on the ocean and I got like really sick. So I was like throwing up all day. Um, I tried to get some sleep and then I think it was 11 PM. So we just started the night and we were all like laying next to each other on the deck. Uh, and it was like, so crazy, like, yeah, all the waves and the weather and, um, we couldn't like even like sleep. The boat like was rolling from side to side all the time. Yeah. And then uh, out of the sudden, uh, the boat was like driving slower and slower. And then it didn't move forward anymore. And I think then 30 seconds later, the guide, our guide, he came upstairs in a place where we're sleeping. And he said, well, um, there's a hole in the boat. We are making water and we are sinking. Um, and then that was the moment that... I realized, oh my gosh, like it's in the middle of the night, it's in a pitch dark and this boat is sinking. Um, and at the first moment or like, yeah, in maybe a minute time, it was clear that all our mobile phones were out of service. Um, we didn't have equipment on board to reach people on land. And that was like oh the biggest gosh. problem that nobody knew, knew that we were sinking there in the middle of an ocean so we can i ask anyone can i ask a stupid question what mm. why wasn't there equipment i, I mean in australia there's certain regulations when yes. you have have boats right no, that's and, in indonesia it's all like mm. so simple and basic and all these right. boats most of the boats they don't have like safety mm. uh yeah regulations at all and I paid yeah. maybe $200 for this entire trip. So I couldn't expect like a full 
uh, <laughs> yeah, boat fully serviced. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we didn't have anything on board, and the, our mobile phones were out of service. So that was the moment that I realized straight away, well, we have a big problem now because we didn't see any other boats the day before. And we had like two days to go to reach our destination. And I thought, well, maybe it takes now three hours and we are in the ocean and nobody knows that we are here in this ocean. Mm. Um, and And you also don't know where other land or other islands potentially could be? No, well, because at that moment this was like completely dark, so we couldn't see mm. anything, was yeah. nothing. And that was like really scary as well that it was like just, it was 11 p.m., so we had yeah. the entire night ahead of us. Yeah. And I think, yeah, it took an hour that we all got smashed into the ocean, so there was like a really big wave coming. Uh, the good thing was that we all had our life jackets, and there were like really old ones, but at least we had some buoyancy. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I think after one hour sitting uh, on the deck of the yeah, sinking boat, we got smashed into the ocean. Um, we had one little lifeboat placed for six people and we were at 25 total. Oh, God. Um, yes. And the lifeboat didn't have any motor or pedals, but it was just a place yeah, where we could sit in. Um, and then it was just like waiting and waiting and waiting. And that night was, yeah, it was like the most, um, yeah, terrible thing for me because I was like freezing cold in the wind and the waves and, uh, not know, not knowing what was, yeah, where I was waiting for. Uh, and we started arguing with each other as well. We had like all very stupid questions, but nobody knew answers. Uh, mm. Like it's rescues coming and then we saw a plane flying over and we thought, oh, maybe this is our rescue. But then it was just like a passenger flight. Um, yeah, mm. falling stars. So we thought, oh, yeah, maybe this is our rescue. Um, just like, yeah, very scary that whole night. And then at 6 a.m. the sun, uh, yeah, it was like the sunrise. And then in the far distance, we saw an island. Um, and that was for me like a big moment of relief that mm. because I was expecting, I was expecting to see, yeah, ocean, uh, and ocean only, but mm. far distance, I saw an Island and then I thought, well, this is my only hope to survive is swimming to this Island. Um, so I straight away suggested to swim. I said, well, let's swim to this Island, but. I also saw that this island was like far, far away and that we probably would not like survive that swim. And all the, or most of the others, they said, well, else this, it's impossible to swim to that island. It's too far away. The current is going away from the island. So you're never going to make that. And we have this little lifeboat and we need this lifeboat as well to stay afloat. So don't leave, don't leave here. And I thought, well, yeah probably like it's a stupid idea to swim to that island. But in the meantime, I was thinking, well, if I'm waiting here, nothing is going to happen and nobody know that we are here. It's two ways away from our destination and I can't survive a second night in sea, losing more energy. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think late morning, 
I just had like a split second that I thought, well, I have to leave the group and I have to go to this island because I can't wait here any longer. And then I swam away with four other people, um, a girl from New Zealand or a lady from New Zealand, a French guy and two German girls. And we started swimming to the island. And, and then I think after one hour, we got separated and I continued my swim with Gaylene from New Zealand. And um, wow. we kept like swimming and swimming and swimming and wondering if we were getting any closer or not. And he said, well, no, I don't think we're getting any closer, but we couldn't do anything else than swimming. So swimming, swimming, swimming. <laughs> and then um, I think after maybe five hours or something that we had like the first moment that we realized that we were getting closer to the island. And then we kind of got, got some hope of, well, maybe if we can, if we keep going, we can really reach the island because, yeah, we see that we are getting closer. Um, and in the end, I think it took us, yeah, eight hours um, before, like, we reached the shore and uh, reached the island. Um, and we just arrived there before sunset. So that was, for me, like, such a big relief that I was out that water and I didn't have to stay second night in in sea mm. um, but when we swam to the island well when we started swimming we thought oh well this is like an island with people and there's life but when we arrived on that island we realized that it was a volcanic island with no people uh, no food no water there was just nothing um, and that lady from New Zealand she told me straight away well else we survived the ocean but now we have to survive this island. Mm. Um, so I was like very so relieved when I arrived on that island, but straight away I was back into my survival mode and thought, well, yes, we have to survive this island and we have to keep going to yeah, fight for our lives. Um, so we're on the island. We're trying to find some water and something to eat, but we couldn't find anything. Um, and then... It got dark pretty like quick and we couldn't like really see where we were walking anymore. And it was no proper beach. So it was like all very rocky and uh, bushes. So then we said like, well, let's try to find a place where you can sleep and um, maybe we get some rest. And then tomorrow there's another day and we try to find some water and food. Um, and actually I had a pretty good sleep and also because I was probably so tired from that swim. A little bit. I mean, I know how I feel after doing a 30-minute swim. <laughs> yes. The strange thing was, and that's what I've really experienced during um, that, yeah, that accident, how strong our bodies are. Because during mm -hmm. that swim, I didn't get any cramp. I didn't have any pain. I was just like in my survival mode, and I kept going mm -hmm. and going. I blocked everything around um, and once I was on that island, I realized how sore my legs were and how, yeah, how it was cramping. Um, but yeah, we had a good sleep. And then in the early morning, we woke up and then my skin was completely sunburned. So I had like mm. blisters all over my face and it was like so painful. So we said, well, we need water today. Um, it would be good to find some food and we have to cover our faces from the sun. We have to stay away from the sun. Um, yeah, because what, what are you wearing at this point in time? Uh, at that time, 
I was swimming in just like a t-shirt and underwear because it was yeah. night time. I was sleeping um, when it happened, so I was just like wearing something where I slept in. And yeah. when we arrived on the island, we were at the yeah the first few hours we were completely naked because we our bodies were so cold and um, our clothes were wet and we thought oh well, we have to dry in the last like sun rays there were mm. so we were walking around naked and. I think in the morning I just like wore a t-shirt. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, in the morning we started looking for water and um, yeah, thought, well, maybe we're trying to find, maybe there are some people somewhere on this island. So I'll just walk around a bit. But then in the early morning, morning there was a boat passing by. So we started waving and screaming and we were waving with our life jackets um, trying to get their attention, but the boat was going and going and oh, was out no. again. Oh. Yes. Um, and the strange thing was that I was like disappointed, but in the meantime, I, it was also something I expected because nobody was looking for us. So how could this boat see like two people on a deserted island. Um, mm. So, yeah, I didn't expect them to see us. Um, and the other thing was that I was, like, so relieved that I wasn't in the ocean anymore, that at that time it was fine to be on an island. Um, mm. It didn't matter for me to maybe stay there one or two or maybe three days as long as there was coming some rescue. Yeah. Um, and yeah, then I walked around a bit and I found a big water hole. Um, and it was like another good thing that I thought, well, there's water on this island, so we can like s survive here for an, mm. at least another couple of days. Um, and then, um, yeah, I was because I was like, I found that water hole by myself, and then I wanted to look walk back to Gaylene, that lady from New Zealand. And when I walked back to her, I saw like the same boat that was passing by in the early morning. I saw it another time, and now it was like really driving towards me. Yeah. And then uh, I started like waving and screaming another time, and then a, a little lifeboat was coming off the big boat, and it was like motoring toward me. And then, yeah, that was the moment that I realized, well, well, this is my rescue and my life continues and, um, yeah, my life goes on. Um, my, so yeah, that's kind of <laughs> short version. <laughs> I just, I mean, some of the phrases that you used, like my life goes on, mm. people throw that phrase around so mm. flippantly, you know, life mm. goes on. But yeah. quite literally, you mm -hmm. thought my life will continue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was like so confident for two days that my life would come to an end. And I really didn't see any like way to to survive. That's that excellent. Like being in the middle of the ocean, in the middle of the night, um, no rescue coming. I thought, well, I'm going to drown in this ocean. Um, and then on that island as well, I thought, well, nobody knows that we are here. So how how can I survive? So, yeah, I was, like, pretty convinced for two days that 
well, yeah, my life would come to an end. But it didn't stop you, though. No, <laughs> no, it actually started. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, because you, you probably felt helpless mm-hmm. 99% of the time, but it was that mm-hmm. 1% that it took for you to, I guess, acknowledge that but but keep fighting. Mm-hmm. That's that's um that's something pretty uh special isn't quite the right word um because mm-hmm. i don't think special does does it justice but that's something pretty incredible mm-hmm. yes and that's like i think the thing i really experience as well like if you're in such an extreme situation um that our bodies they do something and our mm-hmm. minds as well they do something with us to be able to be so strong in the time mm. and maybe it's different for each person because we all have like different reactions to to danger mm. uh, but i really really um experience with my body that i yeah start fighting and don't give up and um yeah so uh, what happened um to the other swimmers um the other swimmers they reached the island as well but they reached a different spot on the island than where we wow. arrived um and all the other people were still like hanging around the little lifeboat in the ocean and they were drifted away from shore mm. uh, so they stayed a second night in the ocean and they started uh, hallucinating oh gosh um Yes, but they were rescued a few hours after we got rescued. Um, so the boat who rescued us, they dropped us at a police station on the nearest uh, island. And then um, a rescue team, they went into the ocean, started looking for the others, and they found, like, everyone. Wow. Um, but in the end, two Spanish guys they started to swim to the island as well, and they were never found back. Oh, and I gosh. think they started swimming maybe two hours after we left. Oh, gosh. So sad. Mm. Yeah, very sad. But you you guys essentially saved everyone else because without that boat finding you and taking you back to um, the police station, mm-hmm. no one would have been sending out a search party. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, so can I can I ask a couple more questions about mm, it? Sure. Um, and I know that you are so much more than this story as well, but mm-hmm. that's why I did want to ask before you told the story how much this has played a role mm-hmm. in who you are today, um, and obviously it, it has. Um, mm-hmm. But going back to that moment where you decided to swim to shore, mm-hmm. um, and you've got people saying no, that's ridiculous. And you obviously listen to them for mm-hmm. you know for a moment. Who 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 took over in your head? Was it the the fighter? Was it the mm-hmm. um, the person who's got confidence to know who they are and what they're capable yeah. of? Like what 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 kind of? How do you remember that else yeah. being at that point in time? Yeah, that's a very interesting question, and I think in the end. I make a lot of decisions in my life based on my intuition and right. my feeling. And I think I also like analyze the situation. Um, so in the morning, I think I made, I already had my, yeah, I did already did my analysis mm. that 
there was no rescue coming, that I didn't want to stay another night in the ocean. Um, and yeah, that was kind of waiting for nothing there. Mm. Uh, and then the other thing was, well, if I go to swim, it's like far away, probably not going to reach the island. Um, I'm like so fragile in this big and strong ocean and it's so unpredictable. Then, yeah, it was my intuition that, that told me like go and there's no good option. Staying here is not a good option and swimming is not a good option either. But something told me that swimming was a better option than staying there. Mm. And then mm. it was just like a feeling in my gut that told me, well, go. And I think that I got that feeling based on the analysis I did. Mm. I find I find it really interesting, and we uh, we did a podcast with Amy Dixon, who's a paratriathlete, uh, mm-hmm. month, months ago. And something that's really stuck in my mind from that conversation was uh, choices. And mm-hmm. at at the end of the day, or in any situation, you have to make a choice. You may mm-hmm. not like what the choice yeah. is or what the options are, mm-hmm. but you have to make a choice, and you yeah. have to commit to it. And yeah. I feel like if you, and I feel like that's kind of what you did, mm-hmm. but and if you started second guessing yourself, then mm-hmm. that's when you would have really got into trouble and st- stuck in between the, the boat and the island and in no man's mm-hmm. land or if on this podcast, no woman's land. Um, yeah. yeah, that's, I think, yeah. a really good point. Like when you make a choice, then you have to commit to it and you have to like work for it and give everything you have to work towards your goal with like mm. what decision you make because yeah. all the noise around is not helping you to uh yeah work towards uh, yeah the goal or yeah yeah definitely so when when you decided to swim were you convincing the others um or how, how did that play out or did other people sort of just agree with you those other four people I think you said or five well, people in the beginning the overall opinion was that we have to stay in one big group so in the beginning yeah. I was trying to convince like every single person to to swim with me but mm. then soon I realized well I can better like leave this group with the fit and strong people instead of yeah, the survival of the fittest and in the end and yeah uh, I can better in the end like myself yeah um myself was the most important and um there were like maybe there were some people taking care of the group but i was more in the end i think more selfish and i thought well it's like about me now Mm. Um, so i was trying to convince like the strong and fit people to swim with me Um, and in the end there were like four other people uh wanted wanting to swim and yeah, then we said, well, we go and we leave the rest of the group. Yeah. You use that word selfish and mm. I feel like selfish has such a bad mm. rap. It has such a bad negative connotation to it, but I don't believe that it always has to. How does mm-hmm. that word sit with you? Um, yeah, I think it's not a like very positive word being selfish, but I think in some way, um, yeah, some situations you have to be selfish to, um, um, yeah, to do the right thing for yourself. 
and I've kind of believe it's not always that you're a, that I'm the number one, but mm. it's my life. And when it's a situation about like living or dying, then mm. uh, yeah, you then <laughs> I think it's such an extreme situation that you have to be selfish sometimes. Yeah. Mm. And I just, and that's what I mean by that negative connotation is that I don't believe that being selfish always has to be perceived as a negative thing. Um, it doesn't mean you need to trample on other people to get where you need to get, but you need mm-hmm. to focus on yourself. Um, and like quite, again, quite literally, it was life and death situation for you. And that's the decision that you had to make. If you weren't being selfish, the no one would have survived that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I find, I just, yeah, I find that really interesting. Um, what, uh, how, so, and I've got to say this here, people need to listen to your TED talk um, because you talk, you've talked a bit about all of this on that as well. And we'll, we'll leave a link in the description of this podcast um, because I don't want to, I don't want to just talk about this, but what I do want to find out is psychologically, emotionally, mentally, well, what is, is your mum and dad dropping things behind you? No, I'm not charging my, uh, <laughs> but I don't want to like let it happen that halfway. Um, how does? And I assume you're never going to get completely over it. Although I imagine sharing your story helps you take it all in and and continue to learn from that experience. But what are the steps after you get home, you're safe? Mm-hmm. What are the steps to getting you back to some kind of normality? I assume there were nightmares mm-hmm. uh, for, for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Um, and But I imagine you speak so fondly of your parents. I imagine you had to have a pretty close team around you mm-hmm. to help you through that. Yeah. Yeah. I also think that this is very individual. So we all mm. react in our own way to yeah, big traumas we went through. Um, but when I got home, I started with my studies straight away. So I was home for a week and a week after I yeah started with my studies again, because I wanted to move on and just like keep going, doing what I was doing. Um, and I also thought, well, it's better to be surrounded with my friends and uh, yeah, people instead of yeah maybe taking a break and being on the couch at my parents. And I thought, well, that's not going to help me either. Um, so I started with my study straight away. But the strange thing was that I was still in my survival mode and I didn't have any emotions. I was so uh, it was like I wow. think very difficult to connect with me. Um, right. Uh, it was just like a different person. Yeah, no feelings, no emotions, nothing at all. Um, I just like did the things I had to do. Uh, mm. And the other thing was that I was um, a bit like um, scared in other situations as well. So when I was outside and maybe when I was at the traffic lights, there was kind of a not even like a dangerous situation, but when something happened, I kind of blocked and I thought, well, there's there's a car crash now or in a plane, oh, maybe 
um, when there was like little turbulence in the in the aircraft that I thought, oh, now we're getting an, an air crash. And I was kind of hyper alert, if that does make sense. Right. Yep. Um, and I didn't have nightmares, but I only had like difficulties with sleeping um, to get to sleep. So I was like just awake and awake and I couldn't really sleep. And I think my body was still full with adrenaline. Right. Um, so I lost a lot of kilos as well. I was only like 49 kilos when I got back. Um, and yeah, I think it was just like the reaction of my body, like still fighting and still having the feeling that I had to survive. Um, but yeah, what you said, I had like really good people around me, my family and friends and, uh, I had people around me to share my story and to tell me what, yeah, where I, where I went through. Um, yeah. And I also had a couple of meetings with a coach who was working in the hospital. Um, and I told her, yeah, what I experienced. And she could kind of give me the confirmation that everything I felt at that moment, that it was normal and it wasn't a, an abnormal reaction to yeah the trauma. Um, yeah. And yeah, in the end, it just like took time to... Um, yeah, to be be my normal self again. Yeah, and I guess uh, your normal self is is a very different person to who you were, you know, prior to to that traumatic experience. Uh, I mean, we all grow mm-hmm. over mature or whatever over years anyway, but something like that, um, I guess, uh, makes you grow up faster than you could ever anticipate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree on that. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, I think that I appreciate life so much more than I did before. And when mm-hmm. maybe I had ten colors in the world before this accident, now I have a million colors around me, and I, I see, I think all the little things that happen around me, uh, which I normally didn't see, and now I'm aware of it, and which makes life, yeah, so much bigger uh, and more colourful than than it was before. I love that analogy. Mm. That's beautiful. I I often talk about uh, my daughter Frankie and how imagine being a kid and everything mm. being a new experience and over like mm. all these you know sensations and colours are new and that's kind of who you are because you're allowing yourself to. Yeah, open up your eyes and ears to the many different colors out there. Mm-hmm. That is, I love that. That's the thing is even like riding your bike and you ride your bike and you do your training, but now I kind of pay attention to the birds and the noises and the nature around me. Or um, when I go to the bakery, just like having a short talk with uh, the, the local person in the bakery, all the little things but they, yeah, they color your life, I think, which you didn't yeah. do before and you weren't even aware of. So this explains why you're always smiling. <laughs> I don't think no. I've ever seen you not smiling. <laughs> I think I already did before. Uh, <laughs> okay. Like very happy kids and always smiling, yes. But maybe even more, yes. <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, I'm not I- smiling on the race course. Oh, actually, you're right. Yeah, I'm trying to think back to some photos that I do have of you. Yeah, 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I know. I now know yeah. deep down you're smiling. <laughs> yes. Deep down, yes. <laughs> Um, okay, so from that um, entire experience, in, if you could sum up what you would like people to take away from mm. that, um, what they can learn from that, how would you how would you summarize it? I would like really advise people take every opportunity you got. So there's always kind of a standard road you. Um, you follow in life, but if you get an opportunity to do something else and you have the desire to explore, then do it and go for it. And once you take the decision to go for it and give it a chance, then uh, give it 110% to make it work. Mm -hmm. Um, And don't follow the standard route. Yeah, commit, Mm. commit to it. Exactly. I like it. Mm. I like it. Uh, we kind of just uh, brushed over this because there was a shipwreck to discuss, but <laughs> <laughs> um, you you were studying at the time. Yes. Yeah. Um, where does I mean? Do we call you a doctor? Where, where does your degree your where where does all that sit? Other than being a professional triathlete, what yeah. else are you? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm a doctor. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, so I completed my medical studies in 2015, a year after um, I got shipwrecked. Um, and I had like a special interest in the specialty of surgery. Um, so it's a, it's a very competitive specialty to get into. I don't know how it is in Australia, but... In the Netherlands, it's very competitive to get your spot into surgery. And it helps to have your PhD in surgery. So a lot of doctors, after their graduation, they start doing a PhD and then, um, yeah, they get into the specialty. And then it's another six year of practicing to become a full surgeon. Um, and I had a yeah, special interest for the specialty of surgery and decided after my studies to start a PhD in surgery. So I did some uh, studies. Um, it was cancer research, um, esophageal, I don't know, the esophagus. Um, yes. So I did like studies into esophageal cancer and patients who undergo surgery for this cancer. Um, and yeah, I've done that for four years and last actually now a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, November 28th last year, I, um, yeah, had my graduation in my PhD. Um, so yeah, that's why I'm in, in medicine at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, sorry, keep going. Yeah. But that now after my PhD, it's, I can't combine it with the specialty of surgery and that I have to work in the hospital and make my hours in clinic. It's just like I can't combine it with being a professional athlete. So at the moment I paused it and, yeah, focus on sports. Right. So as as a or when you when you want to continue, mm-hmm. that will be pretty much post-professional triathlon career. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're a pretty impressive person. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Um, so, so yeah, I'm just trying to where. Let's say ten years down the track. Mm-hmm. Yes. Wow. Where Where do you think you'll be? Because I mean, how old are you now? Uh, I turned thirty this year, so I don't know. Only forty years old. Yeah. So, and we have seen many a um, late thirty, forty year old professional mm-hmm. woman triathlete still doing pretty well. Yeah. So. You know, I'm not saying that by 40 your professional triathlon career will be finished. Mm-hmm. What do you what do you envision? What do you see in well, 10 years? At the moment, I think in 10 years' time, I'm still an athlete. And what you say, like when you're late 30s uh, or 40s, you can still like do like very well in the sport. And because I started the sport so late, I think my peak age will be like even later than most of the the girls in the field. So I think my peak age is maybe 36, 37, 38. I don't know. Um, yeah. But I started this sport when I was 26. Um, mm. Did my yeah first big race when I was 27. So I think when I'm on the peak or, yeah, in this sport, then, yeah, I'm late 30s, I would say. There's still a lot of, yeah. like, gains to make for me. Um, and I've decided for myself as, as long as I enjoy it and can make my living out of it. Uh, and it's important for me as well to, I don't want to, um, perform on like, I want to be like the top in the sport and I don't want, I'm not racing to, uh, be like the number 20 in the world or I really want to, uh, yeah, be a champion actually, and work <laughs> to work to become a champion and be a favorite when I'm on the start line. Um, and as long as I have the belief that I can get there and enjoy it, then yeah, I think I, I like to keep going. Awesome, and then just fall back into surgery once you're done. Well, maybe, <laughs> but I don't miss the hospital at all. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And I think there are like so many opportunities after my sport career. So I just like see it then, like what I will do afterwards. Yeah. What did your parents say when uh, you said, I'm, I'm going to press pause on mm-hmm. being a doctor and I'm going to be a professional triathlete? Mm-hmm. Well, my parents what did they say? are fully supportive and uh, oh. they really believe that when I make a decision and I'm, pretty convinced about the decision then they support me in the decisions I take um well other people they said well else you studied for such a long time you invested so many years in this study to be a doctor um so why do you make the step and turn into a professional athlete but my parents they like they love the sport now they uh yeah dived into the sport as well and uh travel to the races I'm doing and yeah, they really enjoy it. I love that. Kind of interesting for me to see like when I'm on the road and having like a conversation with people and you tell people, or they ask you what you're doing and you say, well, I'm a professional athlete. Some people, they, they kind of admire you, but there are also people, oh, they, you have to explain them what's triathlon. Yeah. Swim, bike, (laughs) don't even know about the sports. And, yep. and then when you tell them you're a doctor, then they like start 
kind of, oh, wow, you're a doctor and, uh, oh, that's amazing and uh, good on you. And they have so much more, yeah, sometimes much more um, respect for being a doctor than being an athlete. That's what I, that's what I kind of noticed now. Yeah. If you all understand you- what I, I mean with that? Yeah, I absolutely do. And how do you res- if someone flat out said, "I respect you more for being a doctor than a professional triathlete," how would you respond to that? Well, then I just think, well, it's their opinion, and they don't even know what it's like to be a professional athlete because it's like a lot harder to be a professional athlete <laughs> than being a doctor to me. Yeah, I also think it's a lot harder harder to find out what your passion is mm. and chase that. I think you you and many other professional triathletes are in a really unique position mm-hmm. uh, in that you've you've recognized what you love yeah. and you're chasing that because yeah. I think it is such a small percentage of people mm-hmm. who who a can find figure it out yeah. and b who have the guts to follow that dream. Yeah. Completely agree so, with that because when I advise people that follow your passions and your dreams and they say, but I did, don't even know what's my passion. And exactly. I also think that this is like, it's maybe not a problem, but a thing that goes wrong in our, our educational systems that we all learn history in school, um, maths, science, all these like different subjects, but we don't learn mm-hmm. anything about developing our talents and passions so yeah i think some kids they just get lost by learning Mm -hmm. languages and history and other subjects but don't even learn to develop their or find their passion yeah Uh, yeah i i completely agree and that's why i love to put an emphasis on curiosity as well because Mm -hmm. being curious allows you to yeah. uh you know follow different paths and ask questions and figure it out as you go as opposed to you know a I guess a cookie cutter scheduled mm-hmm. type of approach to things. Um and I that's that's a big part of what I love about what I do but also which allowed me to you know create wits up and and mm-hmm. um you know, follow this kind of journey, not just because of triathlon, but because I'm a genuinely curious person and I I love asking questions and I love finding out about people and what makes them tick and mm-hmm. um, that's what led me to what I do. I think it's really important. I think that you are the perfect example as well, like taking the courage to start this platform and which started like pretty small and it's getting bigger and bigger and uh but you had the courage to take a different path and start doing this and follow your passion and i and that's what we see as well like all the work you put into it and the commitment you have it's now resulting that it's it's growing yeah thank you Mm. i appreciate that it was actually funny this morning i had a look on your website because you have like the i don't even know it's like the you can be a patron member, right? Yep, yep. <laughs> and I thought, well, when I talked to Steph this morning, after this podcast, I will become like one of the members and just like make a donation every month. Um, ah. But I was looking on your website, but I couldn't even, I couldn't find the donate button for that or? 
Ah, oh, you've called me out. I'm going to have to go back and make sure it's really obvious. Hey, you um, should promote it better. <laughs> I know. Do you know one of my um, and it's I'm my biggest weakness is um, asking for money mm-hmm. and valuing yes. my time and what we do. Um, so mm-hmm. yes, you are right, and you've called me out on it. And this is not—I did not ask Elves to talk about this. Everyone no. who is listening and just saying this is a paid advertisement, I didn't. No, I was seriously um, trying this morning to find it on the website, and I couldn't find it. It's at the top. It says Patreon. Oh. <laughs> well, I'm on the website now, and still can't but find it. it. Patreon. It's 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 the ad up the top. It's a big green turquoise ad. Anyway, um, if you can't find it, then I'm obviously doing something wrong. With... To, did I blocked all the ads? And no, because this is no. Well, I sent no. you a, green, a, a, a screenshot later on to show you what I'm. Saying. Okay, brilliant. <laughs> Sorry, bro. This is. I love that this has got off track and that you're spooking us on our own podcast. <laughs> Uh, but I appreciate it and thank you for that feedback and I will have to fix things up so it's more obvious to people. Um, but I also need to make sure everyone knows that it's not just, yes, it was me that started it, but it's obviously not just me uh, behind Wits Up. We've got an awesome mm-hmm. crew um, and a massive sh- – I'm going to shout out their names, Jordan, uh, Sid and Molly, who are, yep. I guess, the nuclear nucleus, the, the core. Mm-hmm. And then we've got a bunch of contributors as well. So I do want to take the opportunity to yeah. thank them and give them a shout-out as well. And I, um, I really believe our, yeah, that you took an, another few steps this year with, like, all the coverage you did during all the races. It was, like, pretty uh, amazing. I, thank you. We've had to try and figure out different ways of doing things, and I, I think that's still a work in progress, but I think um, – yeah, I think I think we can do some some good with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll I work on we it. Do. And you, well, you got covered in Sunny Coast and oh no, Cairns <laughs> you did prior, but then unfortunately yes. you couldn't race. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry to bring that up. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. Um, I we have been chatting for about an hour, which is typically when we start to wind things down. I don't want to because I've got so many more things I want to talk to you about. Mm. Um, but I think I think we might have to do a part two if that's okay. Um, yeah. We've, I mean, obviously the shipwreck story. It'd be crazy if we didn't talk about it because it is mm-hmm. a major part of your life. But before I let you go, I just wanted to because you you kind of alluded to this in terms of talking about your parents and them supporting you. Mm-hmm. I want to talk like way before shipwreck. Um, and before you were a professional triathlete, mm-hmm. did you get that sense from your parents growing up that they were they had your back, that they'd support you in any kind of endeavor that you ever sort of approached? Yes, yeah. So they supported me like as a kid already to do the sports I wanted to do, to do the study I wanted to do, like in everything. Um, so I was like completely free in everything I did. Um, but I also thought about this that it was like that helped me to always like follow my passion and do what I that I did always did what I wanted to do. Um, but sometimes I think it's also like good as a parent to give your 
gelled a bit more direction and I like mm. chose my own direction and I'm like lucky that I like kind of was able to choose my direction um so maybe that's why they also like let me like free but sometimes I think it's good to be a bit, bit more um to stimulate your kids a bit more mm. than what my parents did right mm. in in what respect well I think when I uh, I always I think I already had a talent for sports as a kid and I played tennis and I did some other sports and I think when my parents were a bit more gave me a bit more stimulation in doing these sports I could develop myself in these sports as well on early age um, right. but now like I'm very grateful that I I've done my studies and I've like a really uh, yeah I've developed myself um in other aspects of life before starting my professional career. But yeah, I think it's always like the balance being like very supportive parents and uh, stimulate your kids in uh, yeah, what they are doing. Yeah. Hmm. It's a hard, it's a hard one to get the balance, right? Isn't it? It's um, yeah. uh, we did a podcast with Chrissy Wellington a couple of weeks yeah, ago. And one of the things, and do you remember when she said, um, you know, we think that we're guiding the kids mm-hmm. and teaching them, but they're teaching us yes. at the same time as well. And mm-hmm. it, I just, I think that's a really important thing that it is. And we talk about this in so many different aspects of our life mm-hmm. that it, it comes down to a team effort, um, whatever that looks like, the yeah. village, the team. Um, yeah, and I think that's that's super important uh, throughout all of our phases and stages in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we do. Okay, I've got one last question. Mm -hmm. We are definitely going to have to catch up for another chat. Um, But my very last question, I'm really enjoying asking this question to people. Yeah. What, what, um, what, uh, sorry, in your mind, who do you see as being successful? And it can be anyone, Mm. not including yourself. Um, well, for example, I really, um, admire Serena Williams because she's like such a powerful woman. She changed the mm-hmm. sport of tennis being like the, with her sister, the first like black female in the tennis sport. And now it's completely accepted to have like, um, a multicultural tennis players instead of being only like the white people and always like mm-hmm. fighting now being a mom and still competing on the highest level. And next to her tennis career, she has like other businesses and other things she's doing in her life and yeah, having her family as well. Um, so yeah, I really admire her, I think as a, or see her as a successful person. I love it. Yeah. Have you ever listened to the podcast Sports Wars? No. It's um I, I don't think they're doing it anymore, which is a shame because I really enjoyed it. But it's look it up, Sports Wars and Serena and Venus. Really? Um yeah, they talk about their competitiveness and wow. their, you know, throughout their entire tennis career. It's, it's really interesting. Mm. I love the insights with it. 
I reckon you'll really like it as well. Mm, they have um, a really good documentary as well, uh, Venus and Serena, how they grow up in the sports and the relationship yep. with their dad and yeah, such yeah. a good documentary, yes, how they live yep. toward everything. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I haven't watched that one. I don't. I don't think I've seen that one. Um, but yeah, I imagine this would be similar to, to that as well. But yeah, highly recommend it. Mm, cool. Yeah, look it up. Uh, amazing. <laughs> um, Els, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Sorry about the technical difficulties at the start. <laughs> um, but you've got the rest of your day yeah, ahead of you ooh. now. Is this? Has the sun come up yet? Well, finally started to get light here. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, too funny. Um, Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we'll catch up again with you soon. Yeah, thanks so much for the invitation, Steph. Enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for tuning in. Hit subscribe, give us a rating, leave a comment, and don't forget, if you're not already a WitsUp Patreon member, sign up in the link in the description. But above all else, keep yourselves knee-deep in awesomeness. (laughs) 